0: Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Zell Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. So today we are getting into part two of our mental health book club on Prince Harry's memoir called Spare. We are looking at Part two, chapters one through 58. So to get started, like we always do, what were some eye opener or things that kind of jumped out to y'all as you read it?
1: I just feel like his whole life leading up to the military part, I know that's skipping a good p- part of this portion, but has absolutely prepared him for that kind of final exercise that actually two people Um, I think they went insane perhaps, or they had a mental breakdown, something happened to them during that final exercise. And it's like this whole, this whole process of all this stress and it's it's prepared him for, for that. That's what I've, it's one of my takeaways.
2: I just to like piggyback on Becky said, uh, I thought that was an interesting kind of point where he was like, yeah, everyone else went mad and I was fine Uh, specifically because I've, in my own mental health journey, been learning a lot that like people who have trauma are more prone to developing PTSD and like not doing well after military experience. So I'm interested to see where that goes, like this post-military journey after finding out that he's been continuously traumatized during the military as well.
1: And I too want to say that, I mean, personally, I don't know if it's an official diagnosis, but I'm dealing with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, my therapist looked at me in one session and was like, you could go to war, couldn't you? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I totally could. Like, like in my mind, I'm always like, where's the nearest exit? You know what I mean? Like I'm always, I've always got my internal head on a swivel so I can kind of get how He probably, it was really easy for him to dissociate during that whole episode to kind of unplug his mind and just kind of let it happen because he said like he'd nodded off and he'd done this. You know, it's, I I think he's, his mind has been groomed and not a good way. Like, I'm not saying this is positive at all, but his traumas have prepared him to just check out of really bad situations.
0: What was interesting to me is the, and we'll get into it probably later in the discussion, but the press coverage of his going to war and how the press has been like the constant, um, and I think later in the book, he refers to them as like the fly, the bee, and the, the something else. Like they're just annoying pests, but their willingness to just broadcast everything with no care for, like, safety or confidentiality or anything like that, especially when it comes to, like, literal life and death with, like, him going off to war and stuff like that was very unsettling. I think it kind of adds more to the the angst of it. But at the very start, uh, I'm going to read a little section here. Quote, by all means, said the insurgents, who were trying to foment a civil war across Iraq, send us the boy. One of the insurgent leaders extended a formal invitation worthy of high tea. We are awaiting the arrival of the young, handsome, spoiled prince with bated breath. There was a plan for me, the insurgent leader said. They were going to kidnap me, then decide what to do with me. Torture, ransom, kill. In seeming direct contradiction of this plan, he concluded by promising that the handsome prince would return to his grandmother without ears, end quote. It's one thing, I guess, to, you know, go off and serve your country, but another thing to almost like be looked at as a trophy. The story of his life is that he's not human. He's a a prop or a um a toy, a a a thing to be played with and manipulated. And this is kind of keeping with that brand. So that was kind of my take on the beginning of that section.
3: It's interesting to me that he was so So gung-ho about going, though, no matter what happened, no matter how many threats he got from, like, legitimate superpowers, he was just like, I still want to do this. This is where I belong. And I think he felt like that was the only place he felt fit in. Like, the only thing he was good at was going to war. Everything else, school, it was hard. Communicating emotion was hard. That's where he felt like it was even playing field for him, I guess.
1: And I guess he kind of felt in control there because – his environment was so controlled for him that he felt like he could maintain a sense of anonymity, which is odd because, I mean, he's serving with his fellow countrymen. You know, they know who he is, but he feels much more, it's just because the press isn't there um, until they were. But yeah, need I'm with you. Like he would, he would rather go he feels safer putting himself in harm's way than in his own country. That's kind of crazy. I mean,
4: I, mean, I kind of like, I relate to that a little bit, but like finding company and like the unknown when your home life sucks that much. Um, there's something to be said for that, that like you kind of, at least like the way he was describing it. I mean, like the way he just talks about it, the like, relating to it, going back to the book we read the first time, I'm glad my mom died. Like when your first bully is your parent, like going to war is nothing like, oh, okay. I'm going to be up all night with like eight of my friends and get to hang out late and like, no, but you know, like the military is telling me what to do and I get to sneak off and still like do, you know, like that. I think it brought him some kind of peace to, you know, be able to go on those adventures and do those things. And school and home is not, it wasn't a peaceful, safe place for him. I think he found it now. I love that. But like, and it goes back to like complex PTSD. Like, I think he's a a good poster child for it. I think this, you know, is another great memoir. That, ta- that really reflects those kind of life experiences. So I love that.
1: Um, I, um, when you said that, it literally brought this up that when I was 16, I left home to be an exchange student in Spain. I did, and, and I left a home with three stepsisters and I had three host brothers. I could have given two shits where I was going, I could have gone to a box under a goddamn bridge. And it would have been better than the environment that I was coming from. And people are like, how could you do that? I'm like, uh, look, the first thing I said when I got off the plane, when I came home to my mother was, I don't want to be here, you know, because I had found a place where I was just treated respectfully and like a human. And it was, you know, halfway across the world, but. That just got stuff that just completely brought everything back. Like, you know, people are think I was crazy for doing that. And I'm I, I had zero fear. Absolutely I'm no gonna, fear.
4: That's why so many of us are in healthcare. Uh I don't know. I have jumped out of airplanes, like not even thought about it. Like we have these high adrenaline jobs. Um, it's it's there's studies. It's interesting. But yeah, no, I did think it was. I I did like that connection you pointed out, Nita. Thanks for bringing that up.
0: I'll piggyback off of what both of y'all said. As you know, I'm a therapist, but I joke with, you know, clients all the time, you know, because sometimes there'll be like that lull in a session where they're like, you know, how did you get to where you could do this for a living or whatever? And I'm like, well, to be honest, uh, college and my entire master's degree in counseling did nothing for teaching me to be a therapist. I said I had a clean 20 to 21 years of mental health, like uh, boot camp, before I ever set foot in a graduate school class. So, pretty much everything is built off of that. And truly, I just use the education part to like make sense of some things, in addition to like doing my own therapy. And I kind of just figured out how to just be unapologetically me. And like we talked about last time, we um, people who've been through shit have great senses of like dark sense of humor and so i kind of get to live the dream i get to um be make dark jokes and like make fun and light of you know really dark shit and use my own story to make someone else feel like they're not alone and um yeah and somehow it's working Uh, i'm still gainfully employed so definitely there's there's something to be said about like being able to take the the things you've been through and like it makes you a little bit more resilient. Doesn't make anything that happened to you okay. Um, but somehow you're able to have a like superpower skill set that you may not have had otherwise. So um I think it's all on perspective.
2: I think too, just to just add to that original, you know, experience for his first tour. Um his bodyguards couldn't come with him. Like there wasn't room for them and to be, you know, in your mid twenties. And that's the first time that you've ever really been alone. You've felt alone, but you've been alone. Uh, I mean, it was exhilarating for him, right? Like, he's like, I'm sitting in like a, you know, room that's, kind of, you know, I can see out holes are in the walls and stuff. He's like, "But this is awesome." Like he he was so grateful to have this opportunity in the middle of a war zone, right? So like most people that's not your place you'd want to be, but he was just in his element alone. Um and you don't you don't see that again until he's learning to fly the helicopters and the bodyguards can't get in the helicopter with him. They're on base, but they're not in, they're not in the helicopter.
0: With I mean this entire section for the most part was about his time in the military but there were some like uh i guess snippets of things outside of the military like his time leading up to it and like when he would like you know leave because of safety concerns and then like come back or get different missions and things like that the part where it's talking about how prior to going off to war um how the paparazzi would like follow him He talks on page 121 about how the click of a photo being taken by like a paparazzi. So he said, quote, I didn't love waking to find a photo of myself on the front page of a tabloid, but what I really couldn't bear was the sound of the photo being taken in the first place. That click, that terrible noise from over my shoulder or behind my back or within my peripheral vision had always triggered me, had always made my heart race but after Sandhurst, it sounded like a gun cocking or a blade being notched open. And then even a little worse, a little more traumatizing came that blinding flash. And then, so later on, he talks about how he had to work around that. So obviously his mother died at the hands of this sort of predatory stalking, uh, which we defined it. Steph did it very well last week as it's stalking he came up with a plan so basically when he'd leave a club or something like that the the best way for him to feel safe is for the car to pull around and for them to shove him in the trunk or in britain it's called the boot had to look that up but the boot is the trunk and he he at the end he said i'd climb into the boot and let billy shut the lid and i'd lie there in the dark hands across my chest while he and another bodyguard ferried me home it felt like being in a coffin. I didn't care. End quote. The the thing I'm really and we talked about it last time. You get such like juxtaposition between like immense privilege and luxury to despair sadness and uh just irony and what the fuckedness. I'm sure that's a clinical term. It's it's been a very interesting story. This is my second time through it and Um, It just really, if anybody who's actually read this can't say, oh, he's just a spoiled, you know, rich kid who's just whining in a book or something like it'd be really hard for this not to be genuine. So he's a great storyteller. I
1: I feel like there's a common thread woven throughout about him um, doing a lot of things to sort of almost tempt fate into killing him, perhaps, you know, he does it um, you know, when he went through the tunnel to kind of almost reenact the crash, you know, he says a lot, like, well, he's in the boot. I don't care if I die, you know, you know, he says when he was landing the helicopter, you know, if he hadn't landed, if he couldn't land it properly, he would have rather have it crashed and burned with him in it. Like, so he makes a lot of, um, risks, he, he talks about a lot of risk-taking behavior without any regard to his own personal safety, um, which is, you know, that's got to be a sign of depression, anxiety.
0: And that's very common. I mean, as a therapist, seeing people who've been through like high levels of prolonged anxiety, now biopsychology and all of that stuff, I've barely passed. Um, so I don't know about the neuro transmitters and stuff. We might have Ashley be a professional um speaker on that. But um it's very common. I see it like where people, it's not even so much like they're suicidal as it is, it's like they know such immense, intense pain that like, you know, um I think it was Steph who said like she's jumped out of an airplane like fearless. Like because your whole like the way you're wired is so fucked up that what is jumping out of an airplane? It's like, come on. This, I mean,
4: as a hobby, like I do stand-up comedy as a hobby. Like, oh my God, it's so scary. And it's like it's it's like, sometimes that my spectrum is so different, but it's been so different for so long that being reflective, because you do that when you're an adult in your 30s and 40s. I I was 19 when I first jumped out of an airplane and did not think twice about it and knew I was going to do it. Like, I knew I was going to do it for probably five years before I did. You know, like that early. And I didn't even think twice about it. And so like reading something like that is like, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, go into the military. You know, like it's a super common place, you know. It's really interesting when you see studies now being done about like, high ACE scores and where these kids go. And I'll let you clinically say that, but I I think it's really interesting and it kind of beads into that a little bit, this concept.
2: Yeah. I I would uh, kind of think of it like kitchen hands. Like when you work in a kitchen for a long time, like you can pick hot, hot plates and it doesn't bother you. It's like that for your brain. Like you just built in a threshold and it, it, rises to that every time now like it's you've burned off the nerve endings i was gonna say
4: alternatively if you like sneak up behind me it is a total overreaction so like yeah exactly exactly yeah exactly
0: i remember that word from school it's called hypervigilance Becky was talking about this and I want to read this part because I think it was a kind of pivotal point in the story. The point where he goes to Paris, I think, for um, the World Cup. And I believe that's soccer. I'm not a sports person. But um, anyway, he comes to this pivotal moment of awareness. So I think, you know, his grief for his mom is throughout this memoir. But we know the different stages, like the denial. He thought she was hiding, right? Um, Anger, like he's gone through all these stages. This is the first time that we see awareness. So I'm going to read these little snippets so that we can kind of see that moment, because that's really where uh, a turning point happened. So, quote, "Uh, the World Cup provided me with a driver. And on my first night in the City of Light, I asked him if he knew the tunnel where my mother I watched his eyes in the rear view growing large. Yes, yes, he knew it. I want to go through it. You want to go through the tunnel? At 65 miles per hour, to be precise. 65? Yes. The exact speed Mummy's car had supposedly been driving, according to police, at the time of the crash. Not 120 miles per hour, as the press originally reported. The driver gave a solemn nod. It had been a very bad idea. I'd had plenty of bad ideas in my 23 years, but this one was uniquely ill-conceived. I told myself that I wanted closure, but I didn't really. Deep down, I hoped to feel in that tunnel what I felt when JLP gave me the police files. Disbelief. Doubt. Instead, that was the night all doubt fell away. She's dead, I thought. My God, she's really gone. Gone for good. I got the closure I was pretending to seek. I got it in spades, and now I've never been able to get rid of it. I thought driving the tunnel would bring an end or brief cessation to the pain, the decade of unrelenting pain. Instead, it brought the start of pain "End quote. What are y'all's thoughts on that kind of pivotal moment where he came to awareness? She's no longer away or hiding or going to come back, but she's really gone.
3: I think for me, it was interesting that he talked to William later Will, Willie and he did the same thing. They had both done the same thing when they went there and both of them were still holding that hope that she was just hiding. And I'm I know it's like self-preservation. You got to tell yourself to sell something to keep going, like to get out of bed every day. But as somebody drives through a tunnel almost every day, like if my family member is killed driving through a tunnel, that's not going to be the thing. I'm like, let me go drive through this same tunnel and try to recreate what just happened it's kind of odd
1: yeah it's very macabre I think um and I just find it odd that that was the moment that he realized that she was dead I guess it just took it was a lot of things that compounded over and over and for whatever reason that that was the thing that led him to believe that not the fact that she had been you know, I mean, missing for a very long time. But I think, too, if his dad had actually taken the time to allow and help his children process her her death and to talk about it in a way instead of, you know, moving on with his whore, this, you know, his, you know, horse face whore, if, um, you know... <laughs> If, if, I mean, that's really, that's all he wanted to do. He just wanted to move on. I I wouldn't be surprised if he was happy that she, that she died, you know, made it easier for him, um, but not easier for her boys, his boys. I don't know. It's the whole, that whole thing is interesting.
4: I said, it reminds me of the part in the beginning when their parents first split, right? And like kids' memories are getting formed as they're like developmentally getting older. And they're doing like this custody split thing. And she's away on vacation with her friend in Paris. And then she dies and they hadn't seen their mom. And it's not like they saw her body. And so like, there's no closure for them. So in a 12 year old's mind, that makes like kind of sense. Like you didn't see your mom, she was away anyway. So like you like time elapsed and like normally you would see her again, you know. So like, that makes sense. But like when they both went through the tunnel, that made a lot of sense that both of those brothers did that at separate times. And like that that moment is when it like clicked because like you could kind of convince yourself, maybe self-gaslighting, whatever, but like you're 12 and like, you're getting used to this new normal of not seeing your parents together all the time, not seeing mom, not seeing dad. And so like, I thought that made a lot of sense to me. And like, I, I'm the oldest of nine. I have three kids. I'm around kids a lot. I ask them questions because like, I do want to have conversations with children and like the their perspective and the way they describe things, you know? So I did find that kind of interesting because that self-reflection, how old was he when that happened? When he goes through the tunnel again?
0: I think he was 23.
4: I mean, there's so many, like, things in your brain that's still forming, too. I mean, that, like, you don't know. And when you get older and you're reflecting on these kind of things. So I I really liked it. Yeah. Um, It really, like, to me, it made a lot of sense. And that they both did it. Their mom died in a very unique way, you know? And so that made... It made some sense. I wouldn't, I I think I'd be with me. I I couldn't have done it. I, I would totally avoid it. That, 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 you know, strip of road for, yeah. But also I think they're boys and boys do weird things like that. That, I mean, maybe, I don't know, who knows? That's probably very gender bias, but I don't know.
0: The relationships, I think outside of, you know, His relationship with his mother kind of came to some interesting points here. So like the relationship with his father, um, but also the relationships he was forming uh, at war were kind of juxtaposed. So I'm going to share kind of two contrasts uh, with that. So on 129, um, I wrote in the margin excuses because his father is, you know, oblivious, I think. But he said, quote, "Uh, Pa knew I was living at Knights Hill knew what I was up to. And he was just on the road at Sandringham on an extended visit. And yet he never dropped in, giving me space, I guess. Also, he was still very much in his newlywed phase, even though the wedding was more than two years prior. End quote. So there's that one. And for those of you keeping score, um, Prince Harry goes very easy on his family in this book, but he makes excuses for his father's, you know, being checked out. I I think the sentiment that he had in the delivery room where he's like, "Okay, I got my air and a spare. My work is done. That's kind of his brand. You know, he's kind of kept with that. Um, And so then later on, on page 138, he he says uh, when he's at war, he says, quote, I like the idea of working closely with top guns, being the eyes and ears for such highly skilled men and women. Their need for me, their dependency created instant bonds strange emotions flowed weird intimacies took shape end quote so while um and for those listening on the podcast who maybe haven't read the book the part where he's down the street from his father he's actually in the military but he's kind of doing some like training and maneuvers um from a more a a safer place uh, to kind of keep his skills sharp and stuff like that but his father still didn't make the time to visit him and as you can see like He's like, well, maybe it's because he's in this newlywed phase, despite the fact that he'd been with this woman before he even met uh, Harry's mother. Again, I'm not biased at all, y'all. Um, but he never, he never made the time. He 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 didn't do that. Whereas at war, he was intimately like interwoven with people, and he felt instant connection. Um, like Ashley said in um, the last episode he learned from an early age that loneliness is normal. And so he's kind of, as he's emerging adulthood, he's getting these tastes of like connection outside of his dysfunctional family. Um, so I wanted to show that kind of juxtaposition there. Any thoughts on that?
2: Uh, yeah. I think that for me was like a pivotal point um, because when I went to college, which he, he didn't go to college, so I'm kind of labeling it, but when you're away from your family for the first time, you're in school, you like meet all these people and you're like, Hey, my situation's fucked up. (laughs) Like, This is not how people behave. Uh, this is not how people act. And I like it here better. Um, you know, you get this kind of bonding experience. That's not through trauma. It's not a trauma bond. It's like a legitimate real bond. And I was glad to see that he was able to finally get that.
0: He kind of labeled it like that too. He said, I didn't go to university, but this was my college.
3: I think for me, it's kind of weird because the more and more I read and the more I see how much stuff he had to go through, the more I like him. Like starting this book, I was like, it's no way I'm going to have anything in common with this kid. No way. Nothing. We're very close in age, age. I was just like, he was given a silver spoon his whole life. What does he know about suffering and anything like that? But actually getting to see his story, it's just kind of like my family has done some really horrible stuff, but his has done some too. So he probably can relate to a lot of us at this level without the money or anything like that. And I'm sure like he did, he would give up all of that to have some sense of normalcy. Unlike the rest of his family.
1: Definitely. Well, honestly, and, and you know, people dismiss it. Well, they're, they're wealthy. What do they have to complain about? You know, and, and it just, you know, that seems very cliche, but money does not buy happiness. And this is, a very pure example of that it's it's awful
0: I think been- for a lot of us a lot of us like because we kind of work in like helping professions a lot of us and I think what I learned you know from being a therapist when I first started out when I came to Richmond I worked with a lot of like community-based counseling so a lot of like you know people fresh out of incarceration a lot of like substance abuse issues like people who, you know, were poor, Medicaid, like that kind of thing. And then as I kind of, you know, got my credentials and was getting ready to go into private practice, the clientele kind of shifted towards more, you know, like private practice, like the middle to, you know, um, middle class to people who are like insanely wealthy, like I get more of a range, right. And what i've learned kind of having most kind of like uh earning my stripes or um kind of getting my bearings with more community-based like uh experiences and then going into kind of the more office setting of you know seeing a different clientele the problems look different but the people who have insane amounts of money are dealing with Intense pain too. And I don't think I would have known that had I not first gotten a lot of, ex- well, first of all, growing up with not a lot of means, and then going into my career, getting a lot of that kind of doing a lot of that work that not a ton of people would want to be doing, but you kind of have to pay your dues to kind of get your experience and stuff. And then kind of getting to a place where I now have like a, a wide range. You know, I have people who qualify for Medicaid, but I also have people who make seven or more figures you know um and i'll sometimes have a session back to back and i'm like these people are dealing with the exact same issues but um despite the fact that this person just has millions of dollars at their disposal they lack a fraction of the coping skills that this person who's living in the projects has it's so for me it has really helped me to understand that we're all common in our humanity. And it's, it's really helped me to broaden the fact that just because you have more doesn't mean that you don't struggle. Because I think as we've seen in, you know, those of us who've kind of been through these different books, like Michelle Obama, we know she's the girl from like South Side Chicago, Euclid Avenue, right? And she grew, you know, leveled up to having means, whereas Prince Harry, literally never would have wanted for anything from the second he was born you know but we we see these um different experiences and stuff like that so uh, it's one of the reasons i love memoirs so much because you really get to get into somebody's story and um i think for people like us like your average reader we're getting to see like wow everyone's got some shit that they're dealing with. So um, maybe I can learn a few things here, a few things there. And it's not so much as the Oh, well, at least it's my life isn't that bad. It's it's deeper than that. It's almost like there can be a little bit of like camaraderie with someone who's just you, you kind of know that they know. And you can't even put words to it. It's just like, Oh, you know, you've been you've been through some shit. So um, I'm enjoying the journey.
2: Yeah, I think it's destigmatizing, right? Like mental health has been so stigmatized and pushed under the rug, and, you know, the really rich people could hide it better. So it was a poor people's problem. It's not, it's an everybody's problem. Mental health is just like any other health. You can have diabetes, you can have depression, doesn't make you better or worse. It's just a disease, and you got to treat it.
1: Yeah. And also, too, you know, being an educator, and I've taught in many different communities, and even in the lower income communities where I've taught, Um, I honestly think that the the wealthier communities are almost crueler, um, to their, to their children. I mean, cruel, like really fucking cruel, like making them retake classes when they don't get an A. Um, I mean, kids are on the verge of nervous breakdowns if they don't get into UVA or whatever, you know, they deem is their parents deem is, I mean, their parents I've sat, side-by-side side with children and advocated for them to be removed from my class because they don't need it to graduate. And, you know, the, the lower income, I mean, they, they, you know, it's their own issue, you know, they have their own set of issues and and they have that too. Um, but it's just different. It's almost like they're working so hard that they just can't be there. And these, you know, wealthy people are there, they can be there, but they just, their child isn't fitting their mold of what a child should be. And I think that's crueler almost. Um, It's very abusive. It's sad.
0: And I think going back to Ashley's kind of explanation, it doesn't matter if, you know, the person is living in the projects or if they're living in a mansion in short pump or something, you know, they, you can have those kitchen fingers from the stuff that you've been through and the i don't know cortisol i think that's one of those chemicals that happens with stress again not my not my lane but i know that the more of that that you get the more that fight flight or freeze thing kind of misfires and stuff like that so it can happen with a a bunch of means or it can be you know it can happen when you have nothing and it depends on the case but sometimes the people with nothing somehow find the the grit and resilience to survive whereas those with tons of means and access to help and any resource you could possibly think of just end it all you know it's it's quite a puzzle almost to try to figure out so just understanding our common humanity is very important i think versus writing somebody off just because of you know, what they have, which for the most part is not really in somebody's control.
1: Well, and two, to kind of link this in, like active shooters with schools, um, the majority of them are recent graduates and they almost always have some sort of a mental health issues, you know, in their adolescence or even childhood, but that record becomes sealed and so nobody knows about it. But um, because, you know, of the, the, the typical school, that's going to get shot up is in an upper white neighborhood or whatever you want to call it. Like it's in an upper middle-class neighborhood that they're going to come in. And if you look at it, like that's almost across the board, um, the type of schools that get um, have active shooters. Um, So I think, you know, pushing the stigma that you talked about, actually, you know, the um, mental health, they don't, you know, and a lot of parents are just, you know, I don't see it. I don't see it. It's not there, you know? Um, Cause it'll make their friends look bad at tennis or make them look bad at tennis. You know, people talk.
2: Yeah. Imagine uh, if the people talking was the whole world. Like that's, that's the level for Harry. It's not like mom's whispering on the playground and pickup line. It's the entire population of planet earth. It's got to yeah. feel pretty awful.
1: Yeah. And they're all lying about them. Like all the shit that they make up and the, and then that parents aren't even fixing it. They're like, they like it, or the dad.
3: I think for me, you also see what happens when you are the favorite kid versus when you're the kid that everybody's just like, uh, you're here, so I guess I got to raise you. I'm kind of like the, the black sheep in my family. So my sister's the favorite. She gets everything, all the phrase, all that kind of stuff. So when I see like mm-hmm. Willie get mad over something stupid, like Africa's my thing. Why can't you, why do you have to have that? I'm just like, let your brother have something like don't hog it all. Everybody else is love in love with you. He's just trying to make it and you're out here giving him no hope, no support, no nothing.
1: But he gives him a little bit of sass. Like when he's like, you know, he's balding, he doesn't resemble our mom anymore as much as he did. You know, he's balding more than me, you know, like he's still, he's poking that bear a little bit. Well-deserved, I think.
0: Yeah. The, the part where you said Africa is my thing enraged me. I'm just going to leave that right there. I'm not going to elaborate on it.
2: Yeah. There's definitely some undertones as being the heir, saying that Africa is your thing or your place or claiming it in some way. Um, It felt very colonizer. Well, yeah, it goes back to the whole, like, no, it's like,
1: literally he possesses it like, like his ancestors, you know, and it's just fucked up. Like, you, you don't own it. It's it's a goddamn continent. First, I'm going to stop. It's, yeah, it's, it, that's really fucked up.
0: We got a little bit of irony in this section. So I'm going to read it. It's on page 148 to 149. Quote, the next day, or perhaps the day after, our convoy was joined by three journalists. I was ordered to take them into the battlefield, give them a tour, with an explicit understanding that the news embargo was still in full effect. Side note, they didn't keep the news embargo. Spoiler. I was in a Spartan up front of the convoy. The journalists stowed inside. They kept popping up, nagging me. They wanted to get out, take some photos, get some film, but it wasn't safe. The Americans were still clearing the area. I was standing in the turret when one of the journalists tapped my leg, asked yet again for permission to get out. I sighed, okay, but be careful of mines and stay close. They all piled out of the Spartan, started setting up their camera. Moments later, the guys ahead of us came under attack. Rounds went sizzling past our heads. The journalist froze, looked at me, helpless. Don't just stand there, get back in. I didn't want them to be here in the first place, but I especially didn't want anything happening to them on my watch. I didn't want any journalist's life on my ledger. I couldn't handle the irony, end quote. So... Journalists literally have tortured his family his entire life and they're in a war zone filming and documenting the fact that a prince is in a war zone and they sign agreement stating we're not going to publish anything to point an arrow to you. And of course they do, because um, as Becky was trying to find it uh, before the next page, um, Red Fox is the nickname that they were referring to. And they were saying, like, Red Fox is in trouble, no doubt about it. And then he's oblivious. He's like, well, were other people, was somebody trying to do something to this Red Fox person? And then um, he says... Now the voices were saying more explicitly that Red Fox's cover had been blown and that he was exposed to the enemy and that he needed to be extracted immediately. Fuck. I said, fuck, fuck, fuck. And that's when the, the kind of story escalates to where basically he has to get taken out of the situation because it's no longer safe, but also because these freaking journalists have now drawn a target to all of these people that Harry has like, trusted his life to but also they trust their life too and they've placed them in danger so it's literally like the magnitude at which press has plagued and i'm not going to talk about the whole royal family but just specifically harry's life is insane the the levels and the the pure deficit of fucks that are given i mean be like if you don't have any but we're talking like thousands of negative fucks are just uh, for nowhere to be accounted for it is insane like the 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 lack of humanity and decency is mind-blowing so but i'm gonna stop there and let y'all respond
2: okay i said i i was thinking like what would anderson cooper do in that situation um one he wouldn't be there because that's crazy but two like what kind of journalism is that like to blow somebody's cover and risk people's lives, right? Like it just, it doesn't make sense to me in in like this country. And it, maybe it's because their tabloids are different and their th- stories are different, but I just, I don't understand where the thought process was for even his leadership to think that that was a decent choice. I'd be like, yeah, the media, they can go along with you, right? Like Normally journalists reporting are reporting on the war, not on a specific person
1: but it's cause he's Royal, you know, they have that sort of symbiotic fucked up relationship, you know, like you let us into your lives and we'll keep paying your bills kind of a thing. Like it's, it's fucked up. But if, if I'm in the tank and those fuckers would have asked to get out, I'd be like, yeah, we're pulling over at the next, you know, scenic outlook and you can get your dumb asses out. And then I'd speed off as fast as that tank would go, which is like three miles an hour, whatever. Fuck them seriously, ledger, whatever, notch in the belt. I I don't know. Like they have, they have messed, they have fucked with his family for far too long. And the fact that the up, like they, they allow that to get in a war zone. Like that is, it's just, it's, it's, it's a level, like a subset of stalking that. And it's like, it's like, not
2: just, I don't know. It
1: just, it it enraged me.
2: And his grandma could have stopped it. That's what gets to me. It's like his grandma could have stopped it and she didn't.
1: They don't fucking care. It's like, he's the spare man. Let him who cares. Right. He's he'll make us look bad or make us look good. We'll make it look good. His bad doing, which wasn't whatever.
0: Obviously the press has killed people, you know, in this family. And Uh, definitely disrupted the quality of life of many Um, anybody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who once knew something about somebody has been fair game right and obviously if the tables were turned if he leaked information as somebody who was on the inside treason no accountability for these people so i want to like go back to Kind of the pivotal like experience that has like painted most of his trauma, and so on page one thirty two, it was earlier than um, that last section that I shared, but it said above all the summary conclusion that Mummy's driver was drunk, and thereby the sole cause of the crash was convenient and absurd. Even if the man had been drinking, even if he was shit faced, he wouldn't have had any trouble navigating that short tunnel unless paps had chased and blinded him why were those paps not more roundly blamed why were they not in jail who sent them and why were they not in jail why indeed unless corruption and cover-ups were the order of the day end quote because you know when we were talking about that tunnel and stuff like that and he like went through it it was a relatively straight tunnel also, um, there's, I guess, like a speed bump as you're going in, or something like that. They flew over that speed bump at 65, and literally the car didn't, you know, budge almost. You know, that's what suspensions are for. Uh, and so it's like, how, you know, in, in every which scenario, and but if you think about it, and then we kind of go back to the quote I shared earlier, where he's like that click of the the camera, and then the flash and the trauma and all of that. Think about. Um, I mean, you ever been driving at night and someone has their high beams on and it gets you and you kind of can't see it, like dazzles you. That's all it takes to like miss something and make a mistake, right? Like as many people were following them, like a bunch of flashes. It is no no shock in my mind that that could have been the catalyst. But like they said, no one was held accountable. And also after her death, I think someone got read for filth, like at the funeral or something, like the press was just kind of like told about themselves and they were like, we're gonna do better and blah, blah, blah. But literally days, months later, it was back to regularly scheduled business. And I think Harry, um, I don't know if it was naively or just because he had no other choice, was like, well, what about when you promise to do better? it was like the same ringleaders that were involved around that time Like the ones who were like, you know, looking inside the car, getting the pictures and things like that were the same people that were like hounding him in his adulthood and adolescence and things like that. It's, it's truly disgusting. And there's no accountability, I think. And also we talked about like norms and protocols and things like that. It was uh, shocking when Meghan Markle decided to sue the, the tabloids for publishing and I think that's in the next section that we're going to read for next week. But they published a private letter that she sent to her father, and they knew they were breaking the law. But like it was they went against her for suing the press because she went against the code of don't mess with us. We will keep messing with you. It's not don't mess with us. We won't mess with you. It's let's continue to exploit you to to do whatever we want. And you give us what we need so that because we pay your bills kind of thing and don't mess with us kind of thing. And then here's this American princess who's like, they don't do it like that where I'm from. I'm suing you, you know, Um, and they went against her. She's the problem. She's the she's the aggressive one. Right. And it's like, well, leave it to this new person to like demand some justice and accountability. Um, They didn't I don't think they won the case, but um, it, it sent a message.
1: No, I think they did. I think on the the Netflix, they talked about it. Like it had just come, they, they did, they won it. Um, I think it was like slander or something. I don't know. It was something. Um, but um, I think it was Rupert Murdoch who, when he talks about calls the one guy, the thumb. So the thumb and then the other, the girl had some name, but I, I think it's Rupert Murdoch's um, tabloid that got taken down. And I, I, I would venture to say, I mean, they hacked into their phones. Because remember, they had them thinking that their best friends, their closest friends were, you know, um, chat, like talking to the press. And it wasn't. They were illegally hacking their phones, which is, I mean, how is that? uh, How is that okay on any level? And all you're going to do is like shut down a tabloid from that. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, you, you get a little slap on the wrist and. I mean, they're, they're responsible for her death. You know, they're responsible for, you know, fucking up all these relationships, you know, suicides, whatever. Like, and I don't, I, I I still for the life of me don't understand why, how that's okay with the British public. Like, I don't understand. I don't get it. I just don't, I don't get it.
0: I think it kind of comes back to you know, I was like talking before, like through my own experiences, and like a lot of us are in the help helping professions and stuff like that. We we understand humanity from across different colors, shapes, sizes, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, all that stuff. And we know, okay, we're all equal in our humanity because all of us are like one bad day away from being in the same damn psych ward, you know, or prison, depending on, you know what the situation is right and there's something about the culture there not to say that the united states's culture is you know superior or anything like that i hate it here but um there's a lack of compassion i don't know if it's like it, it's a it's it's an intense amount of being jaded and detached but i think that's a Common thing that I'm seeing a lot, and I I would say it's been on the rise since the pandemic. You know, you would think something like a global health crisis would like bring people closer together. My personal observations is that people have gotten very selfish. Like um, some some uh, gems are, um, you know, when we couldn't find toilet paper because there were people who had their basement full of toilet paper hoarding. You know, and just the every man for himself And even though we're back to normal, that sounds weird coming out of my mouth, like what is normal, but the selfishness and the every man for himself and the lack of compassion is still there. Like I see it in like the dating world, like the way people treat each other on these apps, like you're just a vending machine. You're just a thing that can do a thing and then get out of my face like everything is so transactional we're and i'm not i'm sure i'm not the first person to be in a stage in their life where they're like we're losing our humanity this is you know really bad and stuff like that i mean i'm sure many generations in the in the past have kind of come to these moments and stuff like that but i don't know about y'all and maybe i'm just on a tangent here but it's truly smothering it really is like painful and overwhelming at the lack of and this is coming from the person who's incredibly cynical and will definitely say like I can't stand this bitch this person is trash this one that like I will let you know what I really think about something but at the same time I understand that we all have value I would not actually do something to actively hurt somebody my defense is to make fun or to, um, you know, say something snarky about it. But the way that people are actually like behaving and treating each other, it truly makes me feel like I can't breathe. And I think his life in particular, like the fact that he's still here and that he's still fighting and that he's somehow built a family and a good relationship and hasn't crumbled under this because his mom didn't fare out so well. Like she had an eating disorder, like she was depressed. She was you know, blackballed and, you know, ousted and all of this other stuff. Like, you know, words and actions really do matter. So hopefully that made sense. It did. Jones, talk I,
1: I ventured out, my husband and I did yesterday. I haven't been in the mall in a very long time. I just don't like lots of, you know, I don't like places with a lot of people. I never have, even pre pandemic, but we were. We walked into whatever department store. We were in the upstairs, and we had to go downstairs to the men's section. And so we walked by the makeup counter, and I kid you not, they were like women on this side, making fun of an older woman on this side. Who the older woman was literally like, "I just need help," and they were work. They they were employees of this store, and the woman was like, "I just need help," and I'm like, "I can't believe she's over there asking for help." Blah blah blah, you know. And I'm like, I walk by and I'm like, I just I got to get the fuck out of here because I'm about to cut a bitch. Like, I mean, like help, you know, like just help They she, she literally just said, all I need is help. And with the way the economy is, I mean, who knows? She's probably hired yesterday and these bitches probably are, have tenure with like three weeks, who knows? But I mean, they were just nasty, just nasty to her. And I, we had to get, we, we got, you know, we hustled down to the men's section and that was a lot better, but I, I, I I feel you. I saw, I saw it yesterday. It was sad. It was really sad. I wanted to be like, can I help you? (laughs) But she had product and was trying to work, work on a um, cash register thing. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Altruism in uh, the world is slowly dying. I don't know how you bring it back. I think that uh, my mom and I talk a lot about like the collective kind of trauma bonding and each generation has kind of had like a really big war in the last hundred or so years Um, To kind of collectively bond them together and like, we have a common enemy and like camaraderie. And uh, this current generation kind of hasn't had that we've had like pseudo wars, but they're really nothing. Um, And it's just taken downhill and you think like, oh, pandemic, like this is a bonding experience and it was everybody for themselves because we weren't fighting a common enemy, we were fighting each other.
1: Well, we had the orange fuck to lead the (laughs) way. Um, He didn't exactly bring people together, you know? I mean, he did like, he, he did nothing. Talk about, I mean, what he made hemp legal. That's it. I mean, I've never wished death upon, I don't want to say anybody because that's not true, but um, most people. And um, I would be lying if I didn't secretly wish that I saw a headline that he had a heart attack when he beat Hillary, <laughs> I found out because my dog fucking, I woke up to him puking on the floor. If this doesn't tell you, I, I literally, I woke up to, you know, the dogs like wretch for God knows how long. And then they finally purge. I woke up to his ass puking and I was like, what the fuck? And so I had to clean that up and I was like, well, I'm up. I might as well look, you know, you know, let's double check that Hillary won I, so, do you think I slept at all after that? Hell no, hell no. I couldn't believe it. I was like, "That fuck won. That crazy fucker won." Sorry, I'm going off. The Fs are off the chain. I just, it's true though. It's absolutely true. I woke up, the up to my dog's He was fucking puking, and I checked, and yeah, that bastard won. So,
2: I mean, you, John, so you might hate the queen, but. She did have a similar opinion of Donald Trump at the very least. She was disgusted. Every time you saw a picture of them together, it was like, why is he here?
0: Thank you for bringing me back down, Ashley. I appreciate that.
1: Me too. I was like, someone's got to tie this in a bow because I'm about to get flushed down the drain. Like it's, <laughs> I'm circling. but plane's not landing.
2: <laughs> the real question is now is that will Harry give up his citizenship to join us full fledged in the land of America and run for, you know, convince his wife to run for president. I mean,
4: holy crap! What if this is all just him running for president or her running for president? Oh is my she God. Canadian?
1: though? Was she born in Canada?
2: Who cares? I'd
1: vote for them.
3: <laughs> born
2: in Canada? I thought she was American.
0: I thought she was I feel the I show. Mean, born
3: in uh, Los Angeles. She's, She's born in go.
2: Just born in yeah. all right
0: all right all right Yeah, I don't think he could because he's not born here. That's okay, she yeah.
2: could. I'd vote for her. The Rock
1: could. He's my celebrity crush by the way. By. Hey,
3: guys, I'm sorry for going back a little bit. My Wi-Fi dropped out. But in journalism school, they teach you if it bleeds it leads. Basically, you put the most harsh headlines first. So people want to hear about crime, they want to hear about death. They want to hear about things like that. So even though people say, oh, I'm sick of hearing all bad news, really what we see when people are tuning in, because we get Nielsen reports, people are tuning in for the shootings, the murders, the rapes, the all the really bad stuff. So people were like, oh, we want to see good news. When you show good news, people don't watch it. People don't respond to it. So as humans, we like to say, oh, it's the media's fault. It's the media's fault. But if the media's goal is to make money. They're going to show you what you're saying you want to see by tuning in. So it sucks that even people are like, well, why are they chasing these people? Why are the paparazzi doing this, this, and this? Because it's a payday. And at the end of the day, everybody wants money. That's how they make their money. So unfortunately, these people are public figures, especially the ones that weren't born into it. The ones that become actors, become musicians, and they have to learn to deal with this lifestyle. It's very unfortunate because people always want to know what's going on. And before social media, we didn't have that kind of, we can see directly from them what's going on. It's like people chase Michael Jackson around relentlessly because back then it was more privacy. Like he could go to his house and yeah, they could be outside, but He's not sitting there with his phone talking to you like we will see like a Kim Kardashian where she loves the attention. She's going to sit there and she's going to turn on her phone. Then She's going to play like, oh, I can't believe people are doing this to me. They're saying this. But you love that attention. That's why you're doing it. So they feed into it. So unfortunately, until people get to the point where they're like, I really don't care, they're people like I am we're going to keep seeing this pattern because the media companies know that's what makes them money. So they're going to keep exploiting that as long as they can.
0: Yeah. I've been um, <clears throat> for like black history month. I I follow uh, one creator on Patreon. Like um, so they, like there's like specific content that they give that isn't like mass, you know, for everybody to see. But one of the discussions that I heard, they were kind of talking about, like you know being a black creator in the month of like black history month it's like you're uh as far as media is concerned it's like your one time of the year to like everyone wants to tune in and like listen to you and uh because it was in that safe place that was like not mainstream they were talking about it's like the reason this happens is because it's trauma porn uh the people who this is your shortest month of the year we won't even Go further on that one, but uh, you get the shortest month of the year to kind of showcase what you want. We're going to put your products in the front of the target or whatever. So there's your little moment or whatever. But the collective, like Nita was saying, like the if it bleeds, it leads. Like uh, we want the the overcoming stories we want the how bad it was we want the first one to do something we that it, it it's it's the same old thing but um this this particular creator you know off off the record like out of the the public eye was like the only like it it's truly disgusting and it's quite traumatizing as a black creator that this is you have to play this game in order to make your money because they don't want a regular, you know, black person who's doing something relatively extraordinary. They want someone who's been stabbed 20 times and uh, has some, somehow clawed their way, you know, to safety. And, um, you know, it's it are and like you said, the only way it's gonna change is if people decide I'm not gonna subscribe to this anymore. I'm going to, you know, turn this off. But the thing is, as we talked before, uh, empathy and compassion is so bleak right now. It's like, and also the world is quite a, you know, dreadful place. Maybe that's something I'm picking up from this British guy that we're reading, like it's a dreadful, a dreadful place, but it's almost like you want to look at somebody else's pain because it makes you feel better temporarily. And it's really sick. It's sick that that's, that's how the little person has to, gets to feel better about themselves is seeing somebody that's a bigger fish suffer I don't know I I don't hopefully the podcast listener is still tuned in but uh the current state of things uh gives me the ick um I wish I had the answer and I'm supposed to be a whole therapist but I'm still trying to uh figure out the the answer to getting out of this mess but it's quite it's quite daunting
1: so there's a creator that I follow on. Instagram and YouTube. Um, his name's Glenn Harry. I don't know if you know him, but he vlogs, although I disagree with vlogging and your children personally, but, um, he does a lot of really good, um, just general, like just normal, like family things, but from the black family perspective. And so I, I find, I, I try to follow, you know, di- different, I I need a different point of view. You know what I mean? Obviously I'm white, I'm white as fuck. Um, I mean, it's in my genes. Like my, my family didn't even come into the country until the 1900s from fucking Sweden, you know, like Germany is as far South as I go. But, um, but anyway, he talks, it's interesting. Um, so we talk about black, black, um, you know, whatever, uh, creators, but he, he's one that one of my, one of my favorites. It's like just a normal family guy, seemingly. I mean, you know, I don't really, I haven't really dug into his history or anything, but he's also educational. And I think that if anybody could, could subscribe to that and open themselves up to something, um, a, a different perspective, um, that's helpful, you know, um, should be anyway. Doesn't really have anything to do with the book, but it's when you said that, it reminded me of that.
2: I'll bring it back to the book. So um talking about the media and like their thoughts on it. Um, There's been a lot of headlines running with like, Harry says penis multiple times in a book. Um, And it's a very small, like few pages where he's talking about his frostbite. And if that's what they're running with in the media of like, this is the takeaway from Harry's book. Yeah. It's because it bleeds like it's catching and, you know, crazy. And like, could you believe that he talked about that? It's a few pages. Like he's talking about his experience with frostbite and like how he was doing other stuff during it. And it was impacting his ability to like be a person, not that he just wanted to say penis, you know, 15 or 16 times. And so I thought that was really interesting is, you know, I've been trying not to like read what the media says about the book, but I mean, it's everywhere. Um, This like one little snippet. And I I find it very interesting that that's what the media is picking up on.
0: Because I pre-ordered this book. Before I even knew this mental health book club would be a thing, like before I had been awarded the grant and everything, I had pre-ordered this book because I was like, I remember watching the Oprah interview and seeing him do the EMDR. And I was like, when his story comes out, I want to hear it, you know? So I had gotten the the Audible version. And so, it, you know, they send you an email the morning the book comes out. Hey, your, your Audible book is now available. I have a job. So... You know, I didn't get to it right away. And y'all know those who know me know I usually have three and four books going at the the same time. The quickness at which that audible book became available, narrated by Prince Harry, and the Instagram feeds that I saw about Elizabeth Arden Cream on his Dodger, these people must have stayed up until 12 a.m. The night the book came out. I don't know if they listened to it on 25 speed. But to find that part, the day the book came out, that was what was trending. That was the the trending sound on Instagram reels and TikTok. And I'm like, how'd they do that so fast? Maybe somebody had uh, advanced copies of the book or something. They were like, this is what we're going to do. This is our content strategy. It was just weird. It's really it was weird. Re-
1: it was released in Spain earlier. like I want to say no, a week be before. It was released a couple of places before it was here in the U.S., um,
0: so I just I thought think, it was really fast and really weird how they that was it.
1: It's the press. They're I just want to go over there and just get like a fucking flamethrower to all those little I know you know just paper burns. But then the internet, you know, servers maybe. I don't know.
0: A memo has just come across my desk that this podcast has been shut down by the royal family. Effective immediately, I have to in the recording. I think I
1: hear someone knocking um, at, the, like, like with a with the um the whatever that big. What's the knocker? The big like the
0: the battering ram.
1: Yes, I think I hear a battering ram at my front door.
0: Yeah,
1: that's my favorite uh, part too, because they're petty
4: enough to be looking up every mention of them anywhere, and the stories that come up, especially in these tabloids, they remind me of. You know, the seventh grade, eighth grade bully on what's the most embarrassing, stupidest, easiest, I don't know. Some of us uh, matured in mental age as well as physical age. Um,
1: I mean, it's crazy to me that they give a shit about his wiener. Why do you care? If it works, who fucking cares?
0: I. This reminds me of our discussion of Michelle Obama's book. And I think we, there was one episode where it was like, we were kind of going through some things. And I think the general sentiment among the, the book club was like, we weren't really feeling that particular section. And then we ended with the like comic relief of like, what team are you? Team toilet paper over, toilet paper under, Um, How do you conduct yourself in these streets when it comes to toilet paper, right? And I think that Ashley has done a beautiful job at bringing that same energy to this particular conversation about Prince Harry's memoir, Spare, by um, ending the conversation on Prince Harry's Dodger um, and Frostbite. Um, So we've learned some important lessons here. And I hope that the listener to this podcast has thoroughly enjoyed um, this uh, comic relief and lighter into this otherwise pretty traumatic uh kind of uh life that the the person that we're reading about has gone through so um the mvp of today is ashley y'all so any last thoughts on this section before we wrap up for today
3: i just have a theory that maybe his own people released all the comments about his uh dodger Because it increases book sales, which increases profit, which increases everybody talking about it. So I wonder if his own people started to plant that whole false bitten situation in the media to get more views and get more people willing to buy the book. Like John Zell,
4: they did not legit shut down this podcast, did they? You didn't (laughs) even post it yet, did you?
3: All right. Well, I believe you.
0: I'm totally joking. I totally
4: believed you. I totally totally believe
0: you <laughs> no that would be that, the highlight of my the career story of my life <laughs> if my if my podcast gets shut down by the royal family i'm gonna cash out on that <laughs> i'm writing a book i am writing a book <laughs> fuck this therapy thing i know where Memoir. i gonna get
1: Memoir. Memoir. here it comes <laughs> and it could <can laughs> be called fuck them bitches all of them i hate all of you or something <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone. So at the very end of our recording, we hit a a technology glitch, but worry not, you didn't miss anything. Um, But before I sign off for this episode, I did want to let you know that the reading for next week will be the rest of part two. That would be chapter 59 through the end of part two. And we'll also be reading chapters one through 29 of Part 3 in Prince Harry Spare. So if you're following along with us, those are going to be the chapters that we discuss next week. Until next time, thank you for listening and take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.